Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dear Writer. Today we're recording episode 75 and it is another one of our Talking Shop episodes. And like all of these short episodes, we will jump straight into it, being time conscious. So Sarah, what's your tool of the month this month? So I did another article this month. It's called Writing Here, Writing Now, Making Sense of It All, Examining Cultural and Historical Context in the Introductory Creative Writing Class. I am going to apologize in advance for saying this person's name wrong. Um, (laughs) I'm going to be doing exactly the same thing with mine. (laughs) She comes from somewhere in India originally, but the article is by Oindrilla Mukherjee (laughs) um, in the Journal of Creative Writing Studies, Volume 6, Issue 2, Article Number 4, and it's was published in 2021. So I'm going to start off with the same quote the author began with, which read, our histories cling to us. We are shaped by where we come from. Also was originally a quote from an unpronounceable name. So I'm honestly not even going to try that one. (laughs) (laughs) So from that quote, you might deduce that this month, I focused on an incredibly important part of writing, and that's examining how our own cultural and historical background affects us as writers. And the article I read was primarily meant for teachers of creative writing, but I still found it really interesting and got quite a lot out of it. So the author is a lecturer at Grand Valley State University in Michigan, and developed an assignment for her introductory to creative writing class. And the class was kind of part of the general education program, as well as a core requirement for writing majors. So she had quite a varied sort of range of students coming into the class. It was primarily made this assignment that she did to fulfill, you know, specific uh, education aims that they have to achieve basically you know the aim that she had to achieve to get her students to achieve was to be aware of like the historical and cultural context in writing but she didn't want to do that by just you know your average way of doing that would be to get people to study a book with like a particular setting and she kind of thought you know when you've got a class that's more on the practice of writing why not incorporate the students more and have them analyze their own historical context and their own cultural context when it comes to why they write what they write. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, like that also keeps some of it, it, you know, stops their courses being like bogged down too much as well, because then, you know, if you're given like another text, that's very academic and, a lot of people take gen ed classes because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, something like a little bit different from what they usually do. So she didn't want to make it like really sort of academically focused that way and wanted to keep it in the practice of writing. But yeah, so 
basically the purpose of the assignment was for students to self-examine their own cultural heritage and upbringing in order for them to understand more deeply why they write, what they write. And the article was a reflection on the writing assignment and the benefits of it. So the author said that when she first introduces the assignment, she's usually met with skepticism and bewilderment and quoted her in this that most find it quite intimidating because they have never really given their own cultural and historical context much thought, at least not in relation to what they are writing, which I think is a really important point because it's not often that you sit down and kind of examine that. No. Especially in a more formal kind of context. So I think it's really helpful. I'll just briefly describe the assignment that she sort of gave the students, which is three parts, which number one is to search for patterns in your work, such as subjects, themes, objects, food, and sort of family members that crop up time and time again. And then number two was to reflect on your upbringing and identify factors that have played a significant part in your life thus far. But when you're thinking about factors Thinking more from a community perspective, such as religion, technology, race and ethnicity, political beliefs, gender and geography, rather than personal life events. Um, Because she did find if she didn't identify that more specifically, students would start writing about a death in the family or something like that, Mm -hmm. which they felt had a significant impact on them, but wasn't really achieving what she wanted to in terms of like historical and cultural influences on their work so she did find she had to be a bit more specific and the third part was to make connections between the factors identified from the first two parts and make connections between the patterns that you detected in your writing so that was the assignment to be honest I find it quite interesting and if I got this assignment (laughs) in university I would be kind of excited about it but you know I'm a bit weird that way it does sound kind of fun though, because it's been I know. different. <laughs> I almost want to like, you know, start doing it myself, like reading my my own <laughs> writing works and trying to analyze patterns. But anyways, so she mentioned that you know, she remains very non-judgmental of their work and she doesn't attempt to influence her students politically. But it is important to remember that writing is a political act and author personally she felt that the ethics of representation are especially important to her because, you know, her own identity, both as a woman and as an immigrant, kind of makes her a bit more aware of the influences of, you know, your cultural background. And she did find that, like, initially she used to schedule it kind of towards the end of the semester and then she'd find that she needed to do some debriefing after the assignment as many important topics were raised mm-hmm. uh, particularly when questions of cultural appropriation were raised by students who like one student chose to write about ethnicities other than their own and described a situation where it maybe wasn't super culturally appropriate right to be doing so but you know she she didn't judge 
it was kind of implied in there, but you know, it was like in a non-judgmental way, but you know, like this issue was raised, right? About whether it is something that you can do. Like, you know, some people felt the opposite that they tried to veer away from writing diverse sort of casts of characters because that uh, the student was worried that he would create unrealistic people. And that's definitely something I can relate to. It -hmm. can be quite daunting to incorporate diversity into your work because, you know, you want to get that balance right of being sensitive and yet being representative of whatever ethnicity or culture that you're writing in. So the author said her chief objective with this assignment is to have the students begin the process of understanding themselves, the world in which they live, and how art comes into being. So even merely reading this article kind of set my own mind churning. Yeah. Sort of, you know, why do Ashley and I so often find ourselves writing about subjects such as politics and war? what significance does this hold for us you know why have we chosen the settings that we have and the characters that we have and is there something that links them and I honestly don't have all the answers yet but I am really (laughs) intrigued to give this subject a lot more deeper thought and see what I can make out of it and my answers might be completely different to Ashley's too but I think knowing why you write what you write is really important in making sure that we're creating writing that is accurate and representative of different places and populations that we write about. So I would recommend reading this article, even though it's based on an assignment and a university lecturer kind of trying to tell other university lecturers what might be helpful in teaching a creative writing class like you can still get a lot out of it I felt I would recommend it it's I just have never never thought about it before it's so like interesting just because I'm like "Mm, I haven't really attempted to like study myself yeah yeah in that way at least I mean one of one of the examples that she gave was of a student that came across the realization that because she grew up in like because of where she grew up, like a lot of her books were all set unknowingly in a small town and the houses were like cozy and it was winter outside. Like That kind of <laughs> happened quite often for the student. And she was like, oh, you know, like once she knew that she was able to sort of diversify her writing a bit more and explore a little bit deeper. So mm-hmm. I think there's definitely an advantage to understanding your own culture and your own background and how that affects your writing and the settings that you write and the types of people that you write Mm -hmm. yeah so raises some interesting questions it does (laughs) so again that was called writing here writing now making sense of it all examining cultural and historical context in the introductory creative writing class by Oindrilla McKerjee Yeah, that is open access. So again, I will leave the article link in the show notes. So what was your tool of the month this month, Ashley? 
Well, mine was similar-ish to yours. One, because it came from the same journal and two, because it's also about activities done in the classroom, but it is a little bit different. So it's called Before the First Draft, Cultivating Inspiration and Creative Insight in the Classroom by, and again, someone with a name that I'm not going to be able to pronounce. It's by Brandy Reisenweber, I think, from 2018, volume three. So it's, again, she's also a lecturer, but this is for later stage creative writing students and I found this really interesting because it was it's, it's all about inspiration striking and what it means and why it's so mysterious <laughs> which it was a bit different but I enjoyed it and it was kind of looking at how she guides her students to try and make it more of a structured process rather than just like wandering around aimlessly for a while waiting for it to happen <laughs> yeah yeah so Risenweber initially describes at the beginning of the article, as I said before, inspiration is something that's really mysterious. And when you try and ask writers, like, why, do, why are you interested in this topic? Why, why are you like trying to pursue this idea? Why do you, why are you attracted to this idea? Usually they can't really say, they're just like, oh, it just has potential or, you know, it's, it's just, it's interesting or I, I like it or something like that. There's never any like they find it difficult to articulate exactly what has attracted them to this in the first place. Yeah. And when you look at other, or when the author says, when you look at other papers or you talk to other authors, it's really hard to describe exactly what happens while the author is trying to develop the idea in their minds, like before it gets like put onto paper. Cause she's like, obviously things are happening, but no one can really explain like, what exactly leads to that idea that you eventually write down. Yeah. And I was like, that's very true because you, you often have things like sitting in your mind for a while and like things happen to it. And then you're like, ah, <laughs> this is the idea. Yes. Um, yes. So I kind of resonated with that. And the author of this paper also says that this stage of the creative writing process is also rarely talked about in creative writing books or in creative writing courses usually it starts with the idea rather than that process leading up to the idea which is a bit more wishy-washy yes true but she's like it should be you know it should be talked about more because that's actually where the formation of ideas take place which is really significant to writers because that's like the premise of their entire work yes so it should be a bit more you know, front and center, at least in some cases. And she talks about Martin Cowley's four stages of writing in fiction, which he developed from um, dozens of interviews with different authors. And the first two stages occur before the first draft is written. So stage one is finding the germ of a story. And then stage two is shaping the germ into a story through, quote unquote, a period of more or less conscious meditation. (laughs) (laughs) So two of the most important stages of writing come before the first draft and those kind of stages are also the least sort of developed when you're talking about like workshops, books and courses and things. And so if you're only focusing, she, or she says, if you're only focusing on the product of your writing, you're missing half the process, basically. Very good points. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. And I was like, this is very interesting. So then she goes to talk a little bit about the science behind, I guess the science behind insight and then how you can use that to approach generating ideas. 
So she talks about how neuroscience can shed some light on the creative process. She explains that memories are encoded in neurons, but representation of ideas are distributed across many neurons. And each neuron can store many items. So when you remember an experience, you're accessing, um, you aren't accessing one neuron, you're usually activating an entire group of neurons. And she kind of then relates this to, you know, say the example she uses is you meet your baby nephew for the first time and you see their blue eyes and that, that specific color blue triggers a neuron, but that neuron might also encode other memories and also activate other nearby neurons. So then you link it to things like the ocean or that one time the ocean looked that color and you were with your friends on the beach and blah, blah, blah. Or that time that you had a gemstone of the same color that you liked when you were five and you like put it in the fish tank, like stuff like that, <laughs> like where it leads to. Yeah. So she calls this the associate, but it's called the association of neurons. And so she thinks that's what might be responsible for like that first idea sort of stage. Germination stage. Yeah, the germination stage. <laughs> because, well, she quote the quote is uh, from this section, the germ of a story is something seen or heard or heard about or suddenly remembered. It might be a remark casually dropped at the dinner table, or again, it might be the look on a stranger's face. Almost always, it's a new and simple element introduced to an existing situation or mood something that expresses the mood in one sharp detail, something that serves as a focal point for a hitherto disorganized mass of remembered material in the author's mind. And she thinks it's this kind of thinking that results in like the really weird connections <laughs> that you make between things that, you know, can then lead to your ideas. And it also supports the idea of like letting ideas incubate before you write them down so you, know, you just like kind of let them bounce around in there I guess that the idea is that certain elements of it will then trigger other memories or associations that then kind of branch out into directions that you didn't really think about I suppose you could even take that like if you're having trouble sort of narrowing down an idea and you're trying to explore it deeper you could almost ask yourself like targeted questions based on that mm -hmm. based on that theory so you could be like oh you know this thing is really interesting to me I'd like to write a story about it but I don't know what the story is yet and you'll be like okay what things are reminding me of this like or something yeah know? that's kind of where she goes with her course so it's actually so then she developed I think it's a stage it's like a third year university course which is called writer as explorer and it's targeted to those who have some experience writing fiction and practicing craft so because it's not so much focused on the product so much as it is the journey to finding the narrative idea um, and mm -hmm. she says you can modify it for more beginner writers by I guess making it slightly less complicated the process but it is targeted for people who have written before basically mm -hmm. it takes a whole semester and it involves lots of list making and prompts so getting people to like list oddities that they've seen or you know remember listing strange facts about things just listing unexpected details or persistent images that they're always seeing in their mind or things that they um, are always drawn to and then from that, she uses writing prompts to then trigger memories from like the weird things in the lists. Yeah. And the the prompts, well, one, they're designed to bring forth memories, but also images 
um, and observations. And she tries to make sure that she leads the students to give memories or, you know, images that have a strong emotional meaning or some sort of sensory meaning to them so it kind of becomes a bit more personal right so then after that they're you know get to choose which things interest them and then they're sent to research it through like various different things so you know normal research but also doing like interviews you know going to like art galleries like looking at things related to to these topics and then this at this point they have to present their cabinet of curiosities is what it's called (laughs) I love that name. Yes, I did too. Cabinet of Curiosities. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter. It does. It does. So they, they end up presenting that to their class, which ends up being like a very eclectic portfolio of like weird things that people are interested <laughs> in. So they you do all of this and you're not supposed to think about the story yet. It's kind of all about just get, making connections in your mind. Mm-hmm. And after you, after the students have their cabinet of curiosities, they then try and find the story. So they do, she provides them with lots of different writing exercises to find what might have narrative promise. And after the writing exercises, she then does more prompts, but like prompts specifically targeted to discover characters, which I found quite interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I don't know how you do a prompt to discover a character. Well, because I guess in some ways, like, I mean, not saying that like this way of coming up with an idea would necessarily exclude characters, you know, in a memory, you might be reminded of a particular person or like a Mm -hmm. particular personality or something. But at the same time, it probably is a bit more focused and kind of leans a bit more towards coming up with the narrative and the plot first. In which case you do need to kind of like find a character that's going to kind of lead the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's an interesting way of coming up with yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, having prompts that lead specifically to discovering characters and then like discovering the conflict that can exist between characters, like once you've done that. So that was based the kind of basis of the article. I just found it really interesting, like letting you kind of dabble in the idea phase for a long time, kind of just like letting connections happen. A really interesting way to think about it. And I um, can imagine she, she did give some examples of things people came up with. One person, I think, thought they were going to be writing a story about a person with like multiple personalities in prison. Um, and then, you know, the, the evil personality like takes over and he like kills a bunch of people. That was her initial thought, like where it was going. But when she researched it, she ended up discovering so much about the psychology of it all that she found it uh, more interesting to have him not do that weird massive turn and kind of make it more of a story just about him like in in the prison with his multiple personalities and things and I thought it was quite interesting just like how people thought it was going to go one way but once they actually kind of let all of the ideas sort of settle and like go around there like oh you know you don't always need the massive dramatic ending well also it kind of it shows how creative you can be with characters and conflict is that you know that's the the natural sort of place to go is oh you know this person's crazy and they're gonna go on like a killing spree or something Mm -hmm. but with a character like that you could actually have like conflict between the character 
themselves because yeah. you've got these multiple personalities. So you don't necessarily need outside conflict because you're almost creating that to start with, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, so that was um before the first draft, Cultivating Inspiration and Creative Insight in the Classroom by Brandy Weber in the Journal of Creative Writing Studies. So if you're interested in ideation, you can go check that out. <laughs> we should move on to what we're reading for fun this month, Sarah. So I have started Diana Gabaldon's new book. Oh my gosh, have you? <laughs> yes. I'm really jealous. I haven't bought it yet. I haven't bought it. I got it out from the library and I envision needing to get it out quite a few times probably. Um, <laughs> it looks massive. Yeah. So it's called Go Tell the Bees That I Am Gone. And this was the first series that really captured my heart when it comes to historical fiction. So I'm quite excited to read the latest installment, although it has been quite a long time since the last one came out, I believe. Yeah. So it's like in, in my own heart's blood and mm, my own heart's blood or something like that. I think so. It must be like what, four, five years ago, maybe? Because if you know Diana Gabaldon's writing it, you'll know that every book is like gigantic. Thousand pages at least. She doesn't write with like the speed of someone like Stephen King. So there's quite a way between books. And because of this, I I do kind of remember generally the storyline of what happened. <laughs> but it's, it's a little bit fuzzy, but it's okay. You know, it, it'll come back as I read, I'm sure. <laughs> and they're really long, so you don't want to go back and reread it. Because <laughs> you're like, wow, I'm not attempting that. That would take forever if you were to, to, to try and like, you know, this is the ninth book in the series and everyone's like a doorstop. So if you went back to try and read them all again, it would be quite a challenge. You'd probably never get to the one that you actually intended to read in the first place. Um, anyway, so it's, you know... It's a long journey, not to be embarked upon lightly, but it's off to a good start. The first chapter was somewhat reminiscent of some stuff that happened in the previous books, which, I mean, although I wouldn't usually recommend that, especially in the first chapter, um, because of, you know, the aforementioned length and the ninth book in the series it's kind of nice to have that to be like oh yeah that happened in like book number two <laughs> dragonfly and amber so anyways i'll read the blurb but if you're new to the outlander series and definitely start off with the first book which is called outlander or sometimes sold under the title of cross stitch um, primarily in the uk i don't know if they still do that since the series like the tv series came out though they may have just changed all the books outland now. Not a hundred percent certain. I, I have no idea. The version that I read was called Cross Stitch. <laughs> Me too. And I have Cross Stitch because I borrowed your copy, but then I bought a copy afterwards, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the blurb. Jamie Fraser and Claire Randall were torn apart by the Jacobite Rising in 1746, and it took them 20 years to find each other again. Now the American Revolution threatens to do the same. It is 1779, and Claire and Jamie are at last reunited with their daughter, Brianna, her husband, Roger, and their children on Fraser's Fridge. Having the family together is a dream the Frasers had thought impossible. Yet, even in the North Carolina backcountry, the effects of war are being felt. Tensions in the colonies are great, and local feelings run hot enough to boil Hell's tea kettle. 
Jamie knows loyalties among his tenants are split and it won't be long until war is on his doorstep. Brianna and Roger have their own worry that the dangers that provoked their escape from the 20th century might catch up to them. Sometimes they question whether risking the perils of the 1700s, among them disease, starvation, and an impending war, was indeed the safer choice for their family. Not so far away, young William Ransom is still coming to terms with his true father's identity, and thus his own. And Lord John Grey has reconciliations to make and dangers to meet on his son's behalf and his own. Meanwhile, the Revolutionary War creeps ever closer to Fraser's Ridge. And with the family finally together, Jamie and Claire have more at stake than ever before. Sorry, that's quite a long blurb, not unlike the book. (laughs) But yeah, it is a very interesting period of history that... Uh, Diana Gabaldon chose to write about so I highly recommend the series and if you're like me and you've read most of the series and you're up to this book then well done excited to start it (laughs) anyways what are you reading for fun Ashley I'm reading well I'm almost finished this guy kind of cheated I started this a while ago and then went back to it and then put it down and then like started off again and then put it down again it's just really (laughs) bad with books at the moment anyways but it's The Chemist by Stephanie Myers I bought it because I was like I'm a chemist the chemist (laughs) gotta be good right I'll read the blurb first and then I'll tell you sort of my thoughts on it so she used to work for the U.S. government but very few people ever knew that an expert in her field. She was one of the, the darkest secrets of an agency, so clandestine it doesn't even have a name. And when they decided she was a liability, they came for her without warning. Now she rarely stays in the same place or uses the same name for long. They've killed the only other person she trusted, but something she knows still poses a threat. They want her dead and soon. When her former handler offers her a way out, she realizes it's her only chance to erase the giant target on her back, but it means taking one last job for her ex-employers. To her horror, the information she acquires only makes her situation more dangerous. Resolving to meet the threat head on, she prepares for the toughest fight of her life, but finds herself falling for a man who can only complicate her likelihood of survival. As she sees her choices being rapidly whittled down, she must apply her unique talents in ways she has never dreamed of. So it was a lot more violent and a lot more, her talents were a lot more surprising than I had anticipated. Right. Yeah. I kind of thought it was just going to be like a, oh, like a spy thing. Maybe she makes some like, you know, weapons or like some sort of like chemical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot, it's a lot more sinister and like spine tingling than that. So that was a bit of a surprise. A good surprise, but, you know, when you're kind of expecting one thing and then you're like, oh, that's way darker than I thought it was. (laughs) But it is good. It's a very fast-paced book. So if you're looking for something that just kind of moves, it does definitely do that. Maybe I will have a look at that. I mean, I admit that I have read the Twilight novels. So it would be interesting to see Stephanie Meyer with an adult adult fiction. Adult Mm. fiction. I never read Twilight. Her, her writing's real, it's very digestible, the adult fiction. Like, it's just like, you just can like go. Yeah, well, it. I kind of thought it might be because she does tend to have a very good sense of like commercial fiction and really hooking readers in. So fast paced kind of makes sense. 
also makes sense being potentially a little bit more sinister than what you would imagine because she's probably like you know she's got this <laughs> license to to get as sinister as she wants with an adult book whereas you know she was probably yeah. I mean there's moments of like sinister kind of vibes in the Twilight book but it doesn't go like too crazy because obviously it's teenage fiction yeah but yes be interesting to read that one yeah it's it's quite good so yes, we should probably wrap this up yeah so there is still availability left in our author spotlight section so if you would like to apply to that you can go to lindersoncreations.com and in the main menu hover your mouse over the podcast tab and it'll give you a drop down to be featured on dear writer uh, and next time on dear writer it's our main podcast where we're going to be talking about weaving in backstory something I think a useful conversation to have because there's lots of different techniques of doing it so I'm looking forward to talking about that Mm -hmm. me too and if you'd like to know any more about us or any of our writing projects you can visit us at lindersoncreations.com or get in contact with us on Facebook or Instagram under the handle lindersoncreations and if you enjoy the show please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts subscribe on your podcatcher of choice tell your friends about us and we'll be back next week Happy writing, everyone.